said that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on heaven or whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. And you, who once were alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. If indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven, and of which I, Paul, became a minister. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, this is your word. Lord, I pray that it would have its full effect, that it would penetrate our hearts, that we would receive it, that we would believe it, that it would dwell deep in us. The significance of this passage should not be lost on any of us. Lord, I pray that we would, as we study it together, as we read it together, as we learn it together, Lord, that you would sanctify us, you would set us apart for those who are in the faith. But Lord, for those who are here, who have not been reconciled, that have not made peace with you and uh, through the blood of the cross, Lord, I pray that this morning would be the day of salvation for them. Lord, I just pray that you would work in us, work out our salvation with fear and trembling in light of the passage that we just read and as we'll work through it together. In Jesus' name we humbly pray this morning. Amen. The overarching theme of our text today, if you're note takers, is this. Look to Jesus, who is the all-sufficient, all-powerful King who brings peace and hope. Look to Jesus, who is the all-sufficient, all-powerful King who brings peace and hope. I want to try to give you the background of this letter that Paul has written to the church in Colossae. Paul wrote this on house arrest. He had received word from Epaphras about their faith. Look with me in verse 5. We'll look at a couple different verses here uh, to help us. Uh, so, ver- I'm sorry, verse 7. Me in verse 7. Just as you learned it from Epaphras, our beloved fellow servant, he is a faithful minister of Christ on your behalf and has made known to us your love in the Spirit. So Paul wrote this book to the church of Colossae to encourage them in their faith, to encourage them in their walk with Christ because of the love that they have for not only God, but also for others. But there's a second reason that Paul wrote this letter. Paul wrote this letter for his concern for the church against false teachers. Look at verse in chapter 2. Look at verse... Four. I say this in order that no one may delude you with plausible arguments. So we know that there are people in the church at Colossae that are trying to distort the truth by using what they would call plausible arguments. Look at verse 8 in chapter 2. See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit according to human tradition according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. So there are those who are trying to deceive the church into believing elementary 
spirits of the world and not according to who Christ is, and things that are uh, by philosophy, by worldly philosophy, and empty deceit that they are trying to be deceived. Look at verse 16. Therefore, let let, let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food and drink, or with regard to a festival, or a new moon, or a Sabbath. So there are some who are saying that, hey, you must still execute as, as Jewish Christians. You must still execute the festivals. You still must execute the Jewish law. And what Paul is saying, that is not true. Don't let anyone pass judgment on you in question of you not eating the food that is set aside for these rituals. Or that you don't take part in them. And then look at verse 18. Let no one disqualify you, insisting on asceticism and worship of angels, going on in detail about visions, puffed up without reason by a sensual mind. We've been working through the book of Hebrews uh, these last couple months. And hopefully as you started to read, as, as you were with us, if you've been with us at any time in this, that you've seen in the book of Hebrews, that the writer of Hebrews over and over again is trying to exalt Christ over everything else, that He is supreme. He is supreme over the angels. He is supreme over the prophets. He is supreme over Moses and the patriarchs, that Jesus is the exaltation of our worship. And none other can take that. And so obviously in the church at Colossae, the same thing is beginning to happen in the church. Even though they're steadfast in their faith, even though they're walking in this, that they're also being, there are some that are being deceived by false teachers. This is important. See, this was a concern for the early church. And guess what? Still a concern for us today. Right? Ask any professing Christian about the nature and personhood of Christ. And you'll all agree? The answer is no. The answer is that you would actually receive, if you just go on the streets and find professing Christians, and you ask them about the nature and the personhood of Christ, you will get a myriad of answers. Some will say that He's a good teacher. Others will will say that He possessed special powers given by God to perform while He was here on earth. And some will say that He is meek and mild and will not send anyone towards destruction. But that's not the way the Bible portrays Jesus. Not at all. There was a survey done several years ago by a professor named Chuck Quarles. He, he surveyed 1,000 college freshmen and asked how well they understood essential claims of Christianity. On the, uh, of the 1,000 freshmen, 98%, 98% of them claimed to be Christian. Of the 98%, 60% grew up in the Baptist church. Of those 60%, one-third of them did not know that Jesus was God. One of the most elementary doctrines that are in a Baptist church is that Jesus is who He says He is. He is God. We ask the question, how can this be? Well, one is preachers not preaching the Word. That's first and foremost. In our churches, the Gospel not being preached. Jesus not being preached as God. Preaching heartfelt messages that don't speak into the hearts of the people for change 
and direction based on what Christ has done. The majesty, the supremacy, the exaltation of Christ is small compared to how we should be morally and ethically uh, appearing in the out, to the outside world. There's a change that is being sought after. Somewhere we have missed the essential doctrines of Christ. His deity as a second person of the Godhead, His incarnation, His atoning sacrifice, His all-sufficiency, His all-powerful nature, so forth and so on about who Christ is. Somewhere in the church we have missed it. It's not just the pastors though, it's, it's the families. It's the fathers who are here. And the mothers when the fathers are gone. That we should be steadfast in teaching our children these essential doctrines. We should be teaching each other these essential truths about who Christ is. So I want to take a moment as you, as you look at me and as I have your attention. Youth and kids especially, I want you to look at me. I want you to know that Jesus Christ is God. I want you to know that He is the all-sufficient, all-powerful, ever-present King. The world will try to convince you, just like it did in Colossae, of other philosophies, empty deceit, according to human tradition. I want you to know they're wrong. They're wrong. All over the world, they're trying to teach you that, that theory of evolution is correct, all these other ways are right and true. I want you to know that Jesus is God. He is the creator of the universe. I mean, it takes, takes far more faith to believe that the, the order of this universe, the way that it is built and sustains itself, comes from a bang that happened some millions and billions of years ago, it takes way more faith to believe in that than it does for the gospel and the God of the Bible to be true. So I want to take the next few minutes working through this rich Christological text to help solidify who Christ is and who we are in Him. So the first thing that we see this morning is we see the supremacy of Christ as Savior. We see the supremacy of Christ as Savior. See, without Christ, we are, we are born into the iniquity of sin. We are born into sin. That is our plight without Christ. Uh, Ephesians 2 says that we are dead in our trespasses and sins, that we are carrying out the desire of the body and the mind, and by nature we are children of wrath. Verse 21 in our text here in chapter 1 says, You who were once alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, that's who you are. Ephesians tells us, but Christ. But Christ. And here in Colossians, but Christ has done what? He has delivered us from the domain of darkness. He has transferred us to the kingdom of His beloved Son in whom we have redemption and forgiveness of sins. Don't miss these. The first thing He has done is He has delivered us from the domain of darkness. John 1, 4, and 5 tells us that in Jesus was life. And the life was a light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. You've been delivered from that domain. The domain of darkness that is sealed with Satan and his spirits. 
And you have been delivered into the light. You have been not only delivered, but transferred. He has moved us from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of light. You see, we were orphans without a home, and through belief in Jesus, we are adopted as sons and daughters through Him. We are adopted forever into His kingdom where we will hold fast and steadfast in Christ Jesus. I don't know about you, but this is good news for us. That He has delivered us, that Christ has done this. That He is as supreme uh, as, as the supremacy of Himself. That He has delivered us. That He has transferred us. That He has redeemed us. He has freed us by way of ransom. Mark 10.45 says that Jesus came not to be served, but to serve and to give His life as a ransom for many. Jesus met the demands of God's law because we could never perfectly God's law. The fourth thing we see here is that He has forgiven our sins. So if redeem is to pay is to free us from the way of ransom, forgiveness is to cancel the debt. Not only does He pay the ransom, but He says, you don't owe anything back to Me. He has freely canceled the debt. Christ has set us free. He has transferred us to a new kingdom. He has paid our ransom. He has canceled our debt of every sin that we have ever committed. Praise God. Praise God through Jesus Christ, our Savior, that we can be delivered, transferred, redeemed, and forgiven. People that are set apart, that that used to be set apart from God, are now set apart for God. Don't let that fall on you. Don't let that don't let it fall away from you. Remember that. We see the supremacy of Christ as Savior. As Savior. The second thing we see is we see the supremacy of Christ over creation. Verse 15 with me. First, we've got to ask the question: who has the power to deliver us from this? Who has the power to deliver us and transfer us and redeem us and, and forgive us? Who has that power? It's Christ. Why? Because He is the image of the invisible God. The firstborn of all creation. He is the, uh, the, word, the Greek word here means icon. The manifestation, the representation. He is the icon. He is the, the, the imprint of His nature. Hebrews uh, 1.3 says, He is the radiance of the glory of God. And the exact imprint of His nature. He upholds the universe by, his, by the word of His Power. That is Jesus. That is the supremacy of who God is. So even though He's the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. Now don't, don't get tied up here by the word firstborn. That, mean, that does not mean that God created Jesus, that He is the first creation of Jesus. This is where Mormons and Jehovah's Witness get this wrong. Jesus is God. He is not, he is not born of God. He is God eternally and always existed with God. Firstborn means that he is at first importance. It means that he has the rights and privileges and authority as God because he is God. Don't leave here today and say, gee, I don't know if Jesus is God. Hopefully you will not do that today. I hope to build your foundation, your trust that Jesus is the supreme God. (laughs) That he is supreme over every 
thing else in creation. Why? Because he spoke into creation. He's the firstborn. He is the first importance of all creation. He is of first rank of all creation. So we know that he is eternally and always existed. So we know this from what Paul writing in Colossians, but it's interesting there's a dialogue that happens in John 14. John 14 with, um, with Philip. And here's what it says. It says if, Jesus is talking here. He says, If you had known me, you would have known my Father also. From now on, you do, not, you do know him and have seen him. Okay. Get that, Jesus. I've seen him. I've seen you. I've seen him. Philip asked this question. Lord, show us the Father, and it is enough for us. Lord, if you just show us the Father, help, help us to see God the Father, and it will be enough for us. And Jesus says, Have I been with you so long, Philip? And you still don't know who I am? You still don't know me? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. He says to Philip, how can you say, show us the Father? Do you not believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? The word that I say to you, I do not speak on my own authority, but the Father who dwells in me. Believe me that I am in the Father and the Father is in me, or else believe on the account of the works themselves. H.B. Charles says this is an elementary education, ed, uh, elementary question on graduation day that Philip asked. Philip, you should know better. Guess what, Christian? We should know better. The Bible is replete that Jesus is God. He is God that He's eternally and always existed. He is also the Creator of all things. Look at verse 16. By all things, by... For by Him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers and authorities. All things were created through Him and for Him. So He is the Creator of all things. Everything that you see, every, every beautiful flower, every beautiful sunset, everything that you see, even the things that you can't see, other dominions, other authorities, other thrones, Christ created all of it. And He created it for His glory. Not only were all things created through Him, but they were created for Him. Everything exists in Him, for Him, and through Him. Jesus is the agent through which they came into being and the One whom they were made for. When it comes to creation, Jesus is the primary cause in that He planned it. The instrumental cause in which He produced it. And the final cause in that He did it for His own pleasure and glory. So He planned it. He produced it. And is the final cause of His own glory. Romans 11.36 For everything comes from Him and exists by His power and is intended for His Glory. All glory to Him forever. Amen. Why does Christ create heavens and earth and visible and invisible thrones, dominions, rulers, and authorities for His glory through Him and 
for him. The last thing we see here is that he holds it all together. He holds it all together. Verse 17. He is before all things eternally and always existed. And in him all things hold together. This is important for us. As we live in a world, or live in a universe, sorry, where if we were any closer to the sun, we would combust. That if we were, our planet was any further away from the sun, that we would freeze. That if we didn't spin at about a thousand miles per hour on the axis that we're on, we would be lost in space. But yet, if you look at the cosmos, do you see chaos? No chaos. There's order. There's sustainability. There is something that is happening that, that we know the sun rises and the sun sets every day. And we get to get up. And we get to think about His mercies made new every morning because He is sustaining them. That Christ is holding them all together for through His power, for His glory. That means that at any point in time, if Christ were to remove His hand from His creation, guess what it would do? Fall apart. The Bible tells us that's not what Christ has done, that He is sustaining it, that He, is, he has created it, and in His creation He has not created it and left it and just let the world go. Now, Paul here is solidifying for the church at Colossae, and he's solidifying here so that we will not be duped by, by irrelevant, silly myths, that we will not be duped by elementary um, propaganda. Know that we will be solidified that Christ is creator, sustainer of our universe, and that if he were to remove his hand, we would fade away to nothing. Christ holds all things together. He is supreme over creation. So we see the supremacy of Christ the Savior, the supremacy over Christ, supremacy of Christ as Creator. The third thing we see here is the supremacy of Christ as head of the church. Look at verse 18. And he is the head of the body of the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything He might be preeminent. That word preeminent means supreme. It means majestic, majesty, glory. Before all things. So he is the head of the body. He is the power and authority over the church. Christ loved the church, loves the church. Ephesians 5 tells us Christ loves the church so much that He gave Himself up for her. So Christ is the head of the body. We are referred to, uh, in many ways, we're referred to the bride. We're referred to as an army. Uh, we are, uh, 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 the Bible refers to us as sent ones. We are referred to as members of one body. And who is the head of that body? It is Christ. It is Jesus who is supreme over the head of that body. The one who was 
firstborn of the dead. Does that mean that Jesus is the first one ever to be raised from the dead? The answer is no, because we, we know that Jesus, while He was on earth, actually raised three different people, right? It's not what He's saying here. Remember, firstborn doesn't mean firstborn the way that we would read firstborn. Firstborn means that He is first importance of first rank of prominence of privilege. That is what Christ has done. That His resurrection, that His firstbornness is of supreme importance for the church that He is residing over. Every believer who has ever existed, Christ died for you. Gave Himself up for you. As head of the church, and head of the body that He would sacrifice Himself for the members of the body. That is good news for us. Colossians 2.19, look at it with me for a second. <laughs> Go back to 18 where we read earlier. Let no one disqualify you, insisting on asceticism and worship of angels, going on in detail about visions, puffed up without reason by a sensual mind, and not holding fast to the head from which the whole body, nourished and knit together through its joints and ligaments, grows with the growth that is from God. So if we're ever separated from the head, we are malnourished. We are disconnected. But if we are in Christ, if we are united with Him, as He is the head over the body, look what happens. We are nourished. We are knit together. We are unified under the umbrella of Christ and His death and His burial and His resurrection. And guess what happens? We grow together. We don't grow in number. We grow in the most holy faith. We build each other up in the most holy faith. He is the head of the body in His supremacy, His majesty, and His glory, His sacrifice. Look at, He in everything, He might be preeminent. That in all things, by rising from the dead, by being resurrected, by a first rank of most importance, of prominence and privilege, that He would be supreme. So He is the head of the church. He is the head of the church through His incarnation. Verse 19. For in Him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. For in Christ. We just read the passage from Luke 2 of the birth of Jesus. We see the supremacy of Christ in His incarnation. John 1 tells us that the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen His glory. Glory as the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. That is Jesus. Colossians 2.9 tells us that for in Him, the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. So why is His coming into the world so important? Why is it so important that we understand the doctrine of who Christ is? of fully God and fully man, that God would take on flesh and He would suffer the eternal punishment that we deserve. 
That when God would, would bring His wrath on Jesus, that He would be the perfect Savior to die the death that we so deserved? That is the supremacy of Christ in the Incarnation. We can't have the birth of Christ, the Incarnation of Christ, without understanding the Atonement. So for in Him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell as He was born in a little manger in Bethlehem. But verse 20, through Him, through His life, through His perfect life, perfect birth, His perfect life, His sacrificial death, His atoning sacrifice, look at verse 20, through Him to reconcile to Himself all things. God is reconciling Himself to all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of His cross. We love to think about this time at Christmas. We love to think about the peacefulness of, of, of Christ, peace that He brings into the world and brought into the world. Even, even when after His resurrection, what's the first thing that Jesus says to His apostles when He appears to them? Peace be with you. Peace be with you. See, the atonement, the sacrificial atonement here that God reconciles people to Himself through Christ. Through the blood of His cross. Brings peace. I need for you to understand, like, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, and it was perfect. It's perfect, sustainable. Not only that, He built man in His image. And He put Adam and Eve in His garden, gave them dominion over it, and He walked with them. And you can just picture this beautiful Place, this Eden, this Garden of Eden, this beautiful, beautiful place where Adam and Eve were walking in the garden with God, them, with, with God in their presence. And you can imagine this as they, as they greeted one another just with shalom. Peace be with you. Shalom. And then there was tragedy. You get two chapters in and it's beautiful and it's peaceful. And then chapter 3 happens. In Genesis, where, God, where man sins against the holy God. God in His graciousness. God in His mercy and His steadfast love for His people that He's created. Shows them mercy. He shows them mercy through the promised seed that would come through Abraham, through the line of David. We see all this corruption that happens in the Old Testament from, from Genesis 3 all the way through, but God's still doing something. He's still keeping His promise. He's still keeping His covenants. And then here we are in Luke chapter 2 where Christ, the Messiah, the Anointed One, enters the scene. And guess what He brings? He brings peace. He brings peace through the blood of the cross. He brings sacrifice that joins creation back together with Him for all those who would believe. 
No longer is there a chasm between God and man because Jesus is the one, the mediator between God and man that closes that chasm. And for all those who believe, for all those by faith who would trust in Christ, we can have that peace. But yet, I know, that can be peace within, so an inner peace that it brings, because one of the fruits of the Spirit is what? Love, joy, peace. We would have sustained peace. And peace without. That means that we can have peace with, with, with people in the church, be unified together, with our family members, with our friends. But I know, even in a room that's not so many people, that there's some anxious hearts in here this morning. I know this season of life is hard on a lot of people. I just want to tell you, you would put your hope and set your hope in Christ. He has reconciled all things to Himself, including your anxious hearts. Some of you are anxious over all sorts of things that are going on in your life. Some of you are just anxious because you hadn't got that Christmas gift yet and you don't know if USPS is going to deliver it. Right? Like you're sweating. I know it. We get anxiety from all different realms. I just want to tell you, some of you are anxious about traveling to see family. Some of you are anxious about the family who's here with you today. Shh, don't tell them. It's true. We are anxious about much. Christ has given us peace through the blood of His cross. Rest there. Rest at the foot of His cross. Wiersbe says this, Jesus Christ is the Savior, the Creator, the Head of the Church, and the Beloved, the Father. He is the eternal God in our lives. He deserves to have the preeminence, the supremacy, the place of first importance. Does Jesus hold the place of first importance in your life? Does Jesus hold the place of first importance? Does He receive the best of your time? Does He receive the best of your talents and your treasures? Or are there other things that deter you from His supremacy? The last thing we see is the supremacy of Christ as a presenter to God the Father, as a presenter to God the Father. Look at verse 21 with me. I love the way the New Living Translation actually says this. Uh, I know our version here at the ESV says, and you, uh, but the New Living Translation said, this includes you. It's good. This includes you. You who were once alienated, hostile in minds, doing evil deeds, he has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to do what? To present you. So not only is Jesus creator of the universe, sustainer of the universe, all-sufficient, all-powerful, supreme, he's also going to be the one as the head of the church that presents you holy, and blameless and above reproach. That means 
That means without accusation to the Father. But if you continue in the faith, stable, steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, that you, that Jesus is going to be the presenter. So as you consider the meaning of Christmas, it is essential for the Christian to understand that Jesus, who is fully God and fully man, took on the likeness of men, humbled himself by following the will of the Father, even to the point of death, even death on a cross. That is our hope. The New City Catechism asks this question, what is our only hope in life and death? The answer is this, that we are not our own. We are not our own, but belong body and soul, both in life and death, to God and to our Savior, Jesus Christ. Our hope, our peace, our steadfastness finds its rest in Jesus, who is the all-sufficient, all-powerful Where do you place your hope this morning? Where do you place your hope? Do you place it in the hope of the gospel that you heard? That you know is true? Or have you placed your hope in something else? Something that you might get for Christmas? Or something that you hope happens soon? No, we hope in Christ the Savior. That no matter trial, struggle, Sufferings that we are enduring at this time, Christ is sufficient. He is all sufficient and all powerful. Thus might I hide my blushing face while his dear cross appears, dissolve my heart in thankfulness and melt my eyes to tears. But drops of grief can ne'er repay the debt of love I owe. Dear Lord, I give myself away. Tis all that I can do. At the cross, at the cross, where I first saw the light. The burden of my heart rolled away. It was there by faith I received my sight. And now I am what? Happy all the day. Rest in Christ. Hope in Christ. Find peace in the all-sufficient supremacy of our Savior. Pray together.